The Stream of Time. Welcome back to The Stream of Time. I'm your host, Elliot the Historian. Today we conclude the three-part series, The Man Who Changed the World, about the decision by the Roman Emperor Constantine to adopt the then-illegal religion of Christianity. If you remember two episodes ago, I said that I need to set up the context for Constantine's conversion in three parts. The first episode, I discussed how ancient paganism actually worked, in contrast to our postmodern perception of paganism. Last episode, I talked about early Christianity, which is to say, Christianity up until Constantine's conversion. Today, I'm going to talk about the final pieces of context we need to understand Constantine's conversion. I'm going to talk about the Roman Empire during this period, as well as Constantine himself. Okay, on with the show. In the 3rd century AD, the Roman Empire was in trouble. The ways in which it was in trouble were so multidimensional that the best name for this period that historians can come up with is the crisis of the 3rd century. During this century, the empire experienced devastating plague, the plague of Cyprian, which was the second plague in as many centuries. The empire experienced an unstable economy with rampant inflation. There was a new military threat in the form of the Persian Sassanid Empire to the east that provided an existential threat to the empire that the previous Parthians never had. Indeed, at one point, the Sassanids managed to capture a Roman emperor, Valerian, in battle. This was unprecedented in imperial Roman history. But one of the biggest problems the empire had was that emperors had proverbially painted themselves into a political corner. After the so-called five good emperors of the second century, Nerva, Trajan, Hadrian, Antoninus Pius, and Marcus Aurelius, the station of the emperor started to become more turbulent. Marcus Aurelius's son, Commodus, was so hated that he was murdered due to a political conspiracy. While this wasn't the first emperor killed under the curtain of political intrigue, the infamous first century emperor Caligula gets that honor. This seems to have set a precedent. Within months of Commodus's assassination, two more emperors were killed in similar intrigue, while the second of these two emperors, Didius Julianus, barely lasted more than two months in office before being executed, he's worth mentioning because his elevation to emperor set another dangerous precedent. You see, the Praetorian Guard, the military group that was sworn to protect the emperor, put the office of emperorship up for monetary auction. Didius Julianus won the auction, for all the good it did him, and it seems like all it did do was lead to an early death. The military seems to have learned the lesson that it can make monetary demands. The next emperor, Septimius Severus, poured more money into the military, but did so at a cost, literally. He debased the Roman currency of the era by putting less silver in the coin of the realm. In other words, money was cheaper to make. This allowed him to have more currency to pay the military, but it also had the effect that's obvious to modern-day elementary economics students. It weakened the value of the currency, and by extension, the Roman economy in general. While Severus's reign, which ended in 211 AD, was relatively stable, this debasement of the coin was only the beginning of economic problems in the 3rd century. Alongside this, 
the military had become less tolerant of emperors. What would often happen is that the military would proclaim a general as their emperor, but when it looked like the odds were against them, they would assassinate that emperor. This led to a string of emperors who would barely last a year or two before being assassinated. Just looking at the numbers are astonishing. There were nine Roman emperors in the stable second century. Three of these were assassinated, but this was at the end of the second century when things were starting to become less stable. By contrast, the third century had, wait for it, 35 emperors. Of these, possibly 18 were assassinated. That's twice as many emperors were assassinated in the third century as there were emperors in the second century, just to put it in perspective. So we have economic problems, a string of emperors getting assassinated, we have plague, we have a military problem to the east in the Sassanids. Couldn't get worse, right? Of course it could. Throughout the century, the Roman Empire itself fractured as pieces broke off and formed their own empires carved out of territory that was previously part of the Roman Empire. In the west, the Gallic Empire lasted for 14 years as a separate state. In the east, Palmyra provided the power center for another breakaway empire, lasting from 270 to 273 AD. As if all this wasn't enough, this was also the century that the Germanic tribes north of the Roman Empire, such as the Goths, started to migrate into the empire. In fact, one emperor, Decius, was killed in battle against the Goths. I want to focus on Decius for another reason that's relevant to our story today. As you may remember from the last episode, Decius was the first emperor to enact empire-wide persecutions of Christians. Up until the reign of Decius in the mid-3rd century, Christianity had not been an illegal religion. There had been localized persecutions here and there in certain parts of the empire, but until this time it was still largely a legal religion, and had not suffered any sort of emperor-sanctioned persecutions across the entire empire. Decius changed this. In the year 250 AD, Decius issued an edict ordering everyone in the empire except the Jews to perform a sacrifice to Roman gods. Why were the Jews exempt from this law? The thing to remember is that Romans were actually very open to religions, especially ancient religions. Judaism was among the most ancient of active religions at the time, and the Romans never had a problem with the Jews or the religion that they practiced. Christianity was a problem partly because it was relatively new in the eyes of the Romans. It was also, at the time, practiced in relative secrecy, often at night. And there were rumors of both cannibalism and incest being practiced. Of course, there are two sides to every argument, and the Christians saw themselves as an ancient religion because the Christians believed that Christianity was the logical evolution of Judaism in much the same way that Islam would later see itself as a logical evolution of Christianity, the end state of the Abrahamic religions, which is to say the religions that began with Abraham's covenant with God. Practicing in secrecy was almost a given considering the fact that even when Christianity was not illegal, it was still looked at with suspicion. The cannibalism was obviously explained by the Eucharist, the sacramental feast and accusations of incest were a gross exaggeration of Christians' habit of calling each other brother and sister and kissing each other on the cheek upon meeting. 
Okay, but what did ordering sacrifices accomplish? The logic was simple. By ordering sacrifices to a Roman god, the emperor was effectively killing two birds with one stone. On the one hand, the Roman gods would receive a large amount of sacrifices, hopefully placating them and conferring their godly boons to the empire. On the other hand, it would flush out Christians, as many Christians would refuse to sacrifice to Roman gods who they believed to be demons, disguising themselves as gods. By acknowledging and actually paying homage to other gods, they were breaking their own faith in the one single Christian god. That bears repeating. Being Christian meant that you couldn't even acknowledge the existence of other gods. Of course, facing execution or horrible torture, many, probably the majority, of Christians relented and performed the sacrifices. But there were still some Christians who refused and were put to death. While the Decian persecutions barely lasted a year, the psychological effect on the Christian community was traumatic. And while the rest of the third century saw the Christians relatively safe from persecution, the worst was yet to come, under the Emperor Diocletian, who we'll get to in a moment. Back to the Roman Empire. The rest of the third century saw more turbulence. But towards the end, a string of talented, although short-reigned emperors started to put the empire on the road to stability. The emperors Gallienus, Claudius II Gothicus, and Aurelian all had a hand in putting the empire on an even keel and reuniting the fractured pieces. But there was still the problem of emperors getting assassinated. It would take something dramatic and creative to break that pattern. It would take someone with both the intelligence to come up with a way to avoid this and the will to commit to that plan. That someone is Diocletian. Diocletian was a remarkable emperor for a variety of reasons, not the least being that he was the only emperor in history to willingly retire. This was after a long reign from 284 AD to 305 AD. And even more remarkably, after retiring, he spent the rest of his life farming cabbage at his home in Nicomedia, which is modern-day northern Turkey. When Diocletian became emperor, he recognized two key problems. The first was that it was evident that one man alone could not rule the entire empire in the state that it was in. One man couldn't be everywhere at once, and if, for example, an internal threat popped up in the western part of the empire, while the emperor was fighting an external threat in the eastern part, there would be no effective way to put down that threat. Put simply, there was no one the emperor could trust to deal with matters when he wasn't physically present. Keep in mind, it could take months or even a year to get from one side of the empire to another, especially when the emperor was toting around an army to deal with whatever situation needed to be dealt with. Diocletian's solution was simple and elegant. He elevated a trusted general and friend, Maximian, to the status of co-emperor. Maximian would rule in the west, while Diocletian would rule in the east, with the tacit understanding that Diocletian was still the senior emperor. The second problem Diocletian recognized was the problem of succession. In a monarchy, succession is always an issue that can lead to instability and the crisis of the 3rd century proved that rule. Diocletian needed to figure out a succession for both him and Maximian that would be safe for the emperors and stable for the empire. 
So he promoted two more men to what amounted to basically junior emperor. The senior two emperors were called Augusti, and the junior emperors were called Caesars. The empire was further split, and these two junior emperors were in control of their own areas. This was called the Tetrarchy, literally rule by four. The way it was split was thus. Diocletian retained the breadbasket and richest part of the empire, the area that comprised modern-day Turkey all the way down to Egypt. Maximian controlled the rest of North Africa, Spain, and Italy. The junior emperor Galerius controlled modern-day Greece up to Albania, and modern-day France and Britain were controlled by a man named Constantius. Diocletian was hoping to create a permanent system in which senior emperors would step down and promote the junior emperors, who would in turn promote two new junior emperors based on merit, not bloodlines. On this note, Diocletian kept hostages in his court to ensure compliance. One hostage was very important to our story. This hostage was the son of Constantius, the emperor in the northwest. This hostage was Constantine. The fact that Constantine not only became emperor, but sole emperor of the entire empire, should tip you off that Diocletian's tetrarchy system didn't last long. In fact, Diocletian would live to see the system utterly break down. We'll get to that in a moment, but I should talk about a darker spot on Diocletian's record. From the beginning of his reign, he was generally hostile, if not unfriendly, towards Christianity. Earlier in his reign, he purged the army of Christians, generally associated with opponents of Christians, and in February of 303, he issued an edict similar to the one Decius did a half a century earlier, requiring sacrifice or face execution. Like the Decian persecutions, this had a terrifying and chilling effect on the Christians of the time. And again, many were killed, but the majority gave in and provided required sacrifices. I won't try to justify Diocletian's behavior here. Religious freedom is a basic human right, then as now, and I don't generally buy into the idea of judging someone by the standards of their time. But I do think it's important to try to understand why Diocletian did it. He didn't do it because he saw the Christians as a political threat. By this period of time, estimates are that less than 10% of the empire would have been Christian, and the few that had any positions of power had been purged by Diocletian earlier in his reign. Christianity wasn't even a unified whole at this point. Just like now, many different churches had different theological beliefs, so Christians weren't a political threat to the realm. But if you remember two episodes back on paganism, you might remember that pagans didn't value belief as much as they valued practice, or rather, the way they saw it was that the gods cared about practice. To pagans, it was important to sacrifice to the gods, to give the gods their due. Belief and faith were not nearly as important to pagans. When Christians refused to sacrifice, pagan emperors saw this as a serious threat to the realm, as refusals to sacrifice could anger the gods. I'm going out of my way to discuss these persecutions because it makes it all the more remarkable that merely a decade after the Diocletianic persecution began in 303, not only would the two reigning emperors of the time, Constantine and Licinius, issue the Edict of Milan, which decriminalized Christianity, 
But Constantine himself would adopt Christianity, setting a precedent among emperors that would only be broken once by the nephew of Constantine, Julian, known to history as Julian the Apostate, who reigned from 361 to 363. All Roman emperors would otherwise forevermore be Christian, going all the way through the Eastern Roman Empire and, of course, the Holy Roman Empire. Well, as I hinted earlier, Diocletian's plan fell apart almost immediately after he and his co-senior emperor Maximian stepped down. I'm going to gloss over some details about what happens. It gets complicated as multiple men vie for the various thrones that are up for grabs. Even Diocletian's trusted friend Maximian tried to shoehorn himself back into the game. I will give you the big picture, however, and I encourage you to fill in the details on your own later. With that, it's time we talk about Constantine. Constantine, as you may remember, was virtually a hostage in the court of the Eastern emperors. As the son of the junior emperor Constantius, he was supposed to not succeed the throne. Remember, according to Diocletian's plan, succession was based on merit, not familial connections. Constantine managed to escape from the eastern court to his father's territory in the northwest. Remember, his father Constantius had control of the northwest quadrant of the Roman Empire, modern-day France, and Great Britain. Constantius was sick. He was actually called Constantius Chlorus, meaning Constantius the Green, as his skin always had a pallid color, most likely because of leukemia. When Constantius died, Constantine took over in opposition to the demands of the emperor in the east, Galerius. He was well loved by his father's army and was declared emperor by the army in the town of Eboracum, which is modern-day York, in northern England. Controlling the area around Rome, also in opposition to the wishes of the Eastern Roman Emperor, was a man named Maxentius. Maxentius was the son of Diocletian's co-emperor Maximian. I'm sorry to keep throwing names at you, but trust me when I say that this is the watered-down version. By 312 AD, tensions between the illegitimate emperor in the northwest, Constantine, and the illegitimate emperor in the southwest, Maxentius, had boiled over. Constantine took his armies south to try to remove Maxentius from power, making him the sole emperor in the west. They would meet at one of the crucial battles in the history of Western civilization, the Battle of Milvian Bridge. This is a good time to talk about Constantine's religious beliefs. While it's accurate to say that Constantine was a pagan, if you remember two episodes back, pagans had an enormous variety of beliefs. Customs could vary from house to house, or even person to person. While monotheism, that is, belief in one god, was relatively rare and confined mostly to Judaism, some people were henotheistic. Henotheism is a belief that while there are many gods, one god is the most powerful. Constantine's pagan beliefs were most likely leaning towards henotheistic. There is some evidence that he had belief in the religious cult of Saul Invictus. This meant the unconquered sun, and was something like a Roman sun god. But cultists of Saul Invictus tended to believe either that Saul Invictus was the only god, or the most powerful among the gods. This belief in a single powerful god, or at least 
a most powerful god, probably helped ease Constantine into Christianity. While we can't ever fully know what was going on in his mind, it's not a leap to think that for Constantine, moving from Saul Invictus to the single Christian god might not have meant much more to him than seeing the same god with a different name. Did this happen overnight? Almost certainly not. And if we work through the chronicles we have on Constantine, it's evident that his conversion process took place over many years. And yet, there is still a single event that seems to have had some influence on Constantine's religious outlook, and that event is the Battle of Milvian Bridge. As I mentioned earlier, Constantine moved his forces into Italy to try to unseat the self-proclaimed Roman Emperor Maxentius. Maxentius responded by destroying bridges along the Tiber River, the river upon which Rome was built. This would have been a serious issue for Constantine, effectively blocking access, or at least easy access, to Rome. I say would have been because Maxentius made one of history's great blunders. Slightly north of the location that Milvian Bridge had been located prior to its destruction, Maxentius built a makeshift temporary bridge across the Tiber and moved his forces across to meet Constantine in battle. This was a fundamentally terrible idea. Maxentius had been in the enviable position of simply having not to lose. Constantine had an uphill battle, especially if he would have had to get his forces across the Tiber with no bridges. Maxentius made the right move to destroy the bridges, but he obviated it by crossing the river to meet Constantine in battle. Even worse, since Maxentius was the one doing the crossing, his forces had their backs to the river. That meant there was no room for them to move back, or in a worse case, retreat. The only way to cross was from the shaky temporary bridge Maxentius had set up for his initial crossing. I won't go into the details of the battle, but suffice to say, Constantine managed to rout Maxentius's forces. Maxentius himself drowned when he fell off his makeshift bridge on trying to escape. This left Constantine sole ruler of the full western half of the Roman Empire. Okay, but what does this battle have to do with Constantine's religious outlook? Well, it seems Constantine had some kind of either a vision or a dream. The varying accounts don't necessarily agree on what. And this vision told him to put a Christian symbol on the shields of his soldiers. The symbol is called the Cairo. You might have seen it. It looks like an uppercase P with an uppercase X through the middle. It represents the first two letters of Christ in Greek, the letters Chi, the one that looks like an X, and Rho, the one that looks like a P. Again, we don't know the exact nature of what he saw, even whether it was a dream or a waking vision he saw in the sky. But whatever happened, it, combined with the victory at Milvian Bridge, seems to have had a crucial effect in moving Constantine to adopt Christianity. From here on out, he seems to have moved more and more in the direction of Christianity. Initially, he had good relations with the emperor of the East, Licinius, and in February of 313 AD, they proclaimed the Edict of Milan, which officially stopped the Christian persecutions and legalized Christianity. To be clear, they did not make Christianity the official state religion. Christianity would not become the official state religion until the reign of Theodosius I in the late 4th century, about a half century after the reign of Constantine. 
At any rate, these good relations wouldn't last long, and by 324 AD, after a decade of hostilities between the two emperors, Constantine defeated Licinius on the plains of Adrianople in modern-day northern Greece. The year after, he had Licinius killed. Constantine was now sole ruler of the entire Roman Empire. There are some big questions we have here. What would have happened to Christianity had Constantine not adopted it? Would it have gone away? Would it still have eventually dominated Western civilization and eventually spread across the world? These kinds of questions are always difficult or even impossible to answer, but we can still make some educated guesses. For one thing, it's almost certain that Christianity would not have disappeared. Even as a sometimes illegal religion, Christianity had still grown to around 5-10% to of the empire by the early 4th century. And it's important to realize, when Christians gained a convert, pagans lost one. For example, let's say you had two opposing preachers, one pagan extolling the virtues of Zeus and one Christian, both preaching to a crowd of pagans. Any pagan convert to Zeus is still a pagan, but a convert to Christianity is one less pagan. Paganism was slowly losing a battle of attrition to Christianity. So Christianity would have stuck around, but would it have become the dominant religion that it is today? That's far less likely. Constantine's adoption thrust Christianity into the spotlight very quickly. It sped up the process, starting from the top down, and the Roman Empire already had administrative processes that were fairly easily converted to be used by Christians. Also, having an emperor who was Christian motivated a lot of people who wanted to be in the emperor's good graces to convert as well. As I mentioned earlier, within half a century, it would be the required religion of the empire. There were still pagans, but by this time they were on the defensive. This simply wouldn't have happened if Constantine had not adopted Christianity and set all this in motion. We can also say that Christian canon would likely be very different, and Christianity would likely be fractured into even more various sects and doctrines than it already is. Think Lutheran, Catholic, Calvinist, and so on. Constantine, wanting to put an end to bickering over various doctrinal arguments, called together an ecumenical council, the First Council of Nicaea, from which came the Nicene Creed that is still in use and relevant today, 1700 years later. Christian philosophers, who before had been writing treatises defending Christianity when it was illegal, could turn towards Christian ethics, spirituality, and understanding. St. Augustine and his book City of God, in Latin, De Civitate Dei, being probably the greatest example of this. Given that Christianity did end up spreading across the world and having, even to this day, for better or worse, a highly impactful role in society, it's safe to say that Constantine's decision to adopt Christianity had a tremendous effect on the world that we live in today. And thus ends the three-part series, The Man Who Changed the World. Join us next time as we shift gears away from the Roman Empire to where and when are we going? Tune in next time to find out. Thank you for listening, and see you next time on The Stream of Time.